Good morning, friends. Um, my name is uh, Jared Nearman. This is my wife, Morgan. Uh, we are small group leaders here at Austin Oaks, and we had some scripture to read for you all this morning. This is 1 Kings 19, 19 through 21. So he departed from there, he being Elijah, and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Thank you so much. I want to start this morning by asking a question that can feel a little odd, but I, I want to encourage you to go there with me. And even if you're watching online, like live right now or watching it later, I, I want you to participate instead of just being a consumer of the video. I want you to ask, and even if some of you want to be ambitious, to you can write it out, but I want you right now to define what a good life is. If you were to define it, what would it be? If you were to create a list of things that you would have to have or need or maybe even get rid of in order for you to have the good life, what would you put there? What needs to be present? What needs to be added? What needs to be taken away? Or maybe another way of thinking it is like, what would you consider to be a great life? I do. I want to encourage you just for a few moments, just think about that. Like, what would have to be there? You know, if you were to do a quick little survey across, you know, America specifically, and a lot of times you can kind of get a feel for this by looking at New Year's resolutions, and a lot of times that pe what people would put down for what you need or need to have or missing in your life to have a good life, it revolves around things like health, happiness, pleasure, got to have peace, you got to have financial security, and even a good name. You got to have like a good reputation. And anytime we tend to think about what a good life is or what a great life is, like we've grown to believe in American culture specifically that it's found in a self-satisfying, a self-fulfilling life where we pursue the things that we believe will give us the personal joy, fulfillment, freedom, and delight. It's fascinating and these things, if we were to analyze our life right now, we would be like, okay, this is missing in my life in totality, like it's not even present. Or some of us would be like, I have some of whatever it is, but the quality of it isn't that good, or I just simply don't have enough of it. When you start to go through this process of making a list or thinking through what you would need to have in order to have a good life, I guarantee you there's a word that will always show up in that process. It's a word that shows up when we start to navigate and discern our hearts, our desires, our longings, and the word is more. Our internal appetites know that word extremely well, more. We gotta have more. Like our desires are never, like it seemingly never like fully or finally satisfied. And, and especially like we know this word, we've experienced this word, especially coming out of the holidays. So for instance, like maybe this is you and you can resonate with this. Think about Christmas Eve 
or Christmas Day, or even if you need to think about New Year's Eve or New Year's Day, how many of you have ever gone through this process where you just had the meal and you just ate so much and you say what seems to be so common with Americans, man, I am just so full. I'm so stuffed. And then within an hour, you go again grazing. Or for some of us, it's 30 minutes, right? It's that word more. It's like our appetites only know one word more. Even if at that moment you're like, I'm full, shortly thereafter, it's going to want more. Our desires and our longings are the same way. But here's what I want you to know. God created you with this desire, this internal longing to pursue a good life, a great life, a life of meaning, of purpose, but not as defined by culture, but as defined by God. And a lot of times we confuse that. We hear the good life, great life, we start to think of like certain things like, hey, your best life now, and we confuse what it looks like to understand the great life that God has for us. It's important for you to know that God's created inside of you that longing for purpose, to pursue greatness. But he's also created inside of you this desire, this longing for more. And our desires will never be fully or finally satisfied until they find it in Jesus. But because we're so born in sin and our desires and our longings are, are broken and distorted, truly, like, let's just be honest, we really don't know what makes a good life. We think we know. And so we go after those things. And we truly don't really know where to satisfy that more longing inside of us. We think we know. And that's why we need to get to the heart of this question. What is a good life? Why am I defining it the way I'm defining it? And I hope that as we think about this, I hope you start to feel this tension inside of us. And it really should be a tension that we want to resolve. Because yes, there is more in our life to be had. And yes, there is more that we should be moving into. And that's why we have this series called Closing the Gap of looking at our lives from where we are now to where we want to be. How do we move from A to B? And we start thinking about these things, those longings, and those desires of more like helps us think through, okay, what kind of plan do I want? What's my life trajectory? What is all those things? And last week, if you're with us, we said, you know what? Maybe a better question to ask instead of asking what I want is to ask, what does God want? And we come to discover that God wants for us to be made into the image of his son, Jesus, because that's where real and prosperous life is found, is reflected in Jesus. But in this angst, of more. In this angst of going, man, I want to be over here. I, I desire to be over here. I want more influence and greater purpose and whatever it is. Like, I know that it's not just your own soul and your own heart feeling that angst. I believe it's the Holy Spirit churning and drawing you to himself because he wants more for you. He wants to continue to conform you into the image of his son. So here's what I want you to feel this morning, the tension. I want you to think about this question and to be honest. Will your plan, in order to achieve that good life, will that plan fully and finally satisfy your desires? Will it do it? I know what I'm about to say is going to sound so cliche, but you need to hear it. God has a plan for your life. And it's far greater than your plan. 
It's far greater than your dreams. It's far greater than your ambitions. And the beautiful part is it's not just for you. It's for other people as well through you. God desires more of you. He wants great things from you. But again, not defined by you or by the world, but defined by him. And Jesus even says, like, I give to you not as the world gives. He redefines greatness. He redefines all of these things. And that's what we need to understand. And so the tension that we need to feel this morning is going to come in the form of a question of, are you willing to trade your plans for God's plan? Are you willing to lay down your life for his life? Will you make that trade-off? Will you lay down and surrender those dreams, those plans, those ambitions, all of those things that you think will fully and finally satisfy those desires, will you lay those down and accept and receive what God offers you? Will you put your yes on the table this morning? Will you have a predetermined yes? God, whatever it is, yes. Settling that yes now. Not putting a maybe on the table. Not waiting for the moments to come, but settling now. Putting your yes down on the table. So this morning, I want to show you a story in God's word that will, one, encourage you to put your yes on the table because of the invitation to follow God's plan. It's way better than our plans. And the second thing that the story is going to do is going to challenge you to fight your all-too-normal tendency to stop short of experiencing all that God would have for you. And so we're going to look at this story in 1 Kings chapter 19. So if you do have a Bible, I want to encourage you to pull that out. It's so fun to hear pages instead of devices and the weird glow from the pulpit. I encourage you to do that. But if all you got is a phone, go ahead. Just don't text. You think I'm joking. Sometimes people text me. I have an iPad. And they know that. And they try to you know. 1 Kings 19, 19 through 21. Now, disclaimer, this is a story of two prophets who have very similar names, Elijah and Elisha. And if you've been around enough, you know that I already struggle with enunciating words, right? And I stumble and make words up all the time, right? Like, so give me grace. Don't count how many times I confuse the names and tell me that I said the wrong name. It ain't going to help. I already know it. I'm going to do it. And don't sit here now and go, well, let's just keep track of how many times he says Elisha and Elijah in the wrong place. Just letting you know it's going to happen. So he departed from there. He, being Elijah, found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back for what I have done to you. And I love this little phrase. It's an odd phrase. It's almost like Elijah is saying to Elisha, like, what is it to me? The invitation stands. You do what you got to do. So he returned from following Elijah, and he took the yoke of oxen, sacrificed them, and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen, and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah, and it assisted him. Now, the context of this story is so significant. 
Okay, like we would read this and we'd just be like, okay, he got this call and he invited, you know, killed a few animals, had a little barbecue, good to go. But like we got to understand the context of Elisha's life. Like we have to understand that Elisha is really the embodiment of the good life. He's a young professional. He's wealthy. He's got prime real estate. He's got people who work for him. Like this is the good life. He has 24 oxen. He's got 12 yoke of oxen. 12 times 2 equals 24, I believe. He's got 24 of them. And he's in the back yoke. And that means he's got servants. He's got ranch hands doing work. And you can guarantee that he's got other people under his employ there. He lives in what is nicknamed the breadbasket of Israel. Another nickname of this location of where Elisha um, lived was like the dancing meadow. It was like in the beautiful part of the hill country of Israel, lush, the greatest agriculture there. Like you had to have money to live in that place. He's a wealthy, successful man. It seems like he has a good life. And all along comes Elijah, and everybody knows Elijah. He's got a reputation that precedes him. People know that he's wild, he's a little cantankerous, he could be melancholy. Everybody knows that the king and queen hate him and want to kill him and all this type of stuff and that he just kind of like makes his home in the wilderness. Elijah shows up and does something that's kind of odd, but Elisha knew exactly what it meant. He took his cloak off and just put it on Elisha and from what we see in scripture, and I don't know if this is true, but I'm going to imagine it is true, that he just put the cloak on him and just walked away. Like, I don't know if there was small talk or a conversation that happened there, but he just put the cloak on and he just kept walking. Elisha knew exactly what that meant. That cloak meant a few things. It meant, one, a passing of a vocation. It was an invitation to follow, an invitation almost like a discipleship. And if a prophet like Elijah were to do that to you, to accept that invitation to follow a prophet, it's in a similar vein of like following Jesus in the realm of discipleship. Not to confuse Elijah with Jesus, that's not what I'm saying. But it also meant that now I'm going to pass off my authority to you. Elisha knew that. I mean, it's a very similar thing almost to like what Jesus said to the disciples and consequently us in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Right? He gives us this invitation, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Like follow me and I'm going to give you a purpose that's far greater than your purpose. And in this essence at the Great Commission when he says all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, now you go therefore and make disciples, it's almost as if Jesus just took his cloak and his mantle and put it on us. What will you do with that? That's kind of the situation. Will you continue to pursue your own plan, your own way of life? I will do what I want to do. It will maybe a little bit of slice of Jesus on the side. Or will you abandon your way of life, lose your life so that you can gain your life in order so that way you can actually live a good life, a life of deep meaning and significance? This is a very significant thing. I mean, at this moment, Elisha knows very well what this means. To follow Elijah will also mean that I'll probably be hated. It will probably mean I'll be poor. It will probably mean that I will probably lose my good reputation. People won't understand me. To follow him means I have to leave this behind. Different plans, 
Different trajectories, different definitions of a good life. Verse 20, he left the oxen and ran after Elijah, which tells me that Elijah, or Elijah just put the cloak on him and just, just kept walking. And I'm sure at that moment, Elisha was like, okay. And after some time, it seems like this is the way it kind of reads. He left the oxen. He left it be. He runs after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And Elijah said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? Like, I just love the way Elijah just kind of just lays it out there. He's like, hey, you go do what you got to do. The invitation stands. I can't force you to follow me. I can't force you to say yes. I can't force you to make you change this plan of life. It's the same way that Jesus is with us. He's not going to force you to follow him. He's not going to force you to lay your life down. He will offer the invitation to you. He will make the way for you. He will give you the desire to do it. He will give you the ability to do it, but he ain't going to force you to do it. And Elisha is very clear. He's like, I want to follow you but I want to go home and make things right. I want to make sure I can close the chapter of that old life so that way I have no temptation to want to go back. That's exactly what he's saying here. Elijah, I'm all in. I'm all in. But let me just go home and kiss my folks goodbye. Let me go home and deal with some things. And he goes, and you see this. This is a crazy scene. Verse 21, he returned from following him, Elijah, he took the yoke of oxen, all 12 of them, and all 24 of the oxen, sacrificed them, boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen, and gave it to the people, and they ate. 24 oxen. That's a lot. Like, uh, middle class. Middle class in Israel, you were lucky to have one ox. This is like you own 10 cars just because you can one ox would feed a family of five for a year and a half, 24. Not only that, he burnt the yokes. He burned the plows. He slaughtered the ox. This is his way of saying no turning back, no retreat, no plan B, or what we know in our culture, what's your fallback? There is no fallback in following Jesus. Elisha models that. He went home, and he's like, I'm going to make sure that this doesn't tempt me. I'm going to make sure that when I'm following Elijah, a.k.a. following God's plan for my life, that I'm not sitting here tempted to entertain the thought that, hey, if this doesn't work out, Elijah, if you're too crazy for me, at least I got this back home. Elisha is making a bold declaration of faith saying, I'm all in. This is gone. I'm done. He's burning the plows. This is surrender. To accept the invitation to follow Jesus means you have to say no to something. That means you have to immediately say no to your way of life, to your plans. That's exactly what this is. I'm choosing you, God. I'm accepting you. My yes is on the table. I will forever do my very best to say yes to you, Jesus. I mean, friends, like, let's just be honest. We struggle with this. Like, I, I want us to see what Elisha understood, maybe what he believed, so that way we can kind of work through our own struggle with this. And I couldn't find a pithy statement to make this point, like, stick. So I'm just going to say it in the most clunky of ways. He accepted, Elisha, he accepted and believed in joy that saying yes to God's plan for his life 
was far better than his own plan. Like there was something in Elisha that he believed 100% that God's plan was significantly better than his own plan. Even though he had 24 oxen, even though he had prime real estate, and even though he had people working for him, and even though he probably had residual income coming in, even though he, right, like he had all of that. But he knew there was something more. There had to have been something more. Is this all there is? This can't be it. So I want us to like, just to be honest with something. Like when Jesus calls us to follow him, and he says, follow me, it's an invitation for you and I, first and foremost, to surrender our plans. And here's the deal. Nearly, probably 100% of all of us, we all come to God initially because something is missing in our life. Like there's, there's something we need. Maybe we need a blessing, prayer, healing. Maybe it's help. Maybe it's rescuing. Maybe it's comfort or stability. Maybe it's forgiveness. Maybe we just need to hear that God loves us, that God sees us. But we come to God because there's something that we need, right? And God blesses us. These are the benefits of God, and they're absolutely good. No doubt. And even in that moment, we come to God with like still with us having ourselves as the center of our own universe. But the more we understand the blessings of God, the more we come to realize that, oh my goodness, the world doesn't actually revolve around me. God doesn't revolve around me. It's actually he's in the center and everything else revolves around him, including my life. God is so gracious and he knows that. He knows that this is how we typically come to him. But we got to some point in our faith journey with Jesus to make the significant shift from being centric to Jesus being in the center. Now, following Jesus is something we do multiple times. Like one, like your first yes to Jesus is the yes to receiving salvation. We call that conversion. He died for me. He paid the price for my sins, right? Like that's the invitation to the new life. But to be a Christian is a daily response to the invitation to follow Jesus. Carry your cross daily, laying your yes down daily, saying yes to Jesus daily. And I believe when we, when I say we, I'm not saying Austin Oaks Church. I'm kind of leaning in a little bit more like our evangelical culture at large, cultural Christianity. Like we've muddied and misunderstood the invitation to follow Jesus. Like let me, let me explain what I mean. And I, like I'm telling you, I intentionally am meaning to step on toes here. So you're going to be like, wow, he's kind of mean. Sorry. But not sorry. There's a lot that's out there today in Christian marketplace that's completely mucked up this invitation. Like somehow, somehow, like we've like reinterpreted the passage when Jesus said, if you would follow me, you have to deny yourself and carry your cross daily. Somehow we've taken that and went, 
Oh, that means Jesus will help me achieve my dreams, my potential, my aspirations, self-enhancement, self-fulfillment. Jesus will help me have my best life now. I'm going to find these books, I would say, five steps to the great life now, and all these types of things. And we start to make our faith privatized, and we think it's all about like Jesus serving me as if he's revolving around me, and I'm the son of everything. But when we study scripture, oh my goodness, it is the complete opposite like, that's why it's like, it's, it's okay to admit, and anyone, if you, like, is ruffling your feathers, it's totally okay. But, like, prosperity gospel is heresy. It's just, it's just wrong. It, like, Scripture doesn't teach that. Like, does God want to bless you? Of course he does. But it doesn't mean that if you're a follower of Jesus, you've got to be healthy, you've got to be wealthy, you've got to have all these things. No, that's like us trying to use Jesus for our own self-enhancement versus Jesus says, you follow me and I will lead you and I will guide you and you say yes to whatever it is I call you to do. And so therefore we distort and we misunderstand scripture over and over and over and we start to make church into a consumer good and then people get frustrated with church and all these types of things because we fail to understand what it means to follow Jesus. Mark 8, 34 through 36 said it last week. No problem bringing it up again because we need to remind ourselves because Jesus is not a supplement in our life. He's just not. Jesus isn't here to serve me, to help me achieve my dreams, my potential, my passions, and my plans. Mark 8, 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. This is like anybody. If anybody, whoever wants to be my disciple, Whoever wants to receive the invitation, because I'm going to put the cloak on them. It's going to be an invitation. Like, whoever gets this invitation, if you want this, here's what you have to do. This is not an option. This is not debatable. This This is it. You must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Yes, it's a progression. We talked about that last week of spiritual formation, 100%. But, like, look at this. This is a major shift of the center You ain't the center. Jesus is the center. Like, deny self, take up your cross and follow me. That's the thing, that anything in your life that is not like Jesus, you've got to put that to the cross. That even means your plans, your ambitions, and your goals. If it's not like in accordance to what maybe Jesus would have for you, there it goes. For whoever saves their, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me in the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world with 24 oxen, live in the breadbasket of Israel, have all those things, and yet forfeit their soul? When you see it, sacrifice, surrender. Like if you want to follow Jesus, this, this is it. You got to surrender. You got to lay your life down. But like right here, like Jesus is like giving us insight into what the greatest exchange in the world is. He's like, if you want to save your life, if you really want to, to embrace that good life, that, that greatness inside of you, if you really want that more inside of you, listen, you have to lay your life down. You have to lay your plans down and pick up mine. Like that's, this is the path. And finding Jesus, like we kind of said this last week, is to find Jesus is to find literally everything your heart and your soul is searching for. But you have to be willing. You have to be willing to surrender. 
You have to be willing to abandon your plans. You have to be willing to put that yes on the table, come what may. Follow me. And I think Jesus is oftentimes, like, like Elijah would, like he, what he said to Elisha, is very much the same way that Jesus would say to a lot of us. He's like, the invitation stands. I ain't going to force you. Do what you got to do. The rich young ruler, another great example. Young man, probably has his health. He's got leadership, he's got authority, he's got platform, he's wealthy. He comes to Jesus, says, Jesus, what, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is like, you tell me, what do the commands say? He's like, man, I did this check, I did this check, I did this check, I'm good. And Jesus is like, you're right. Go sell all that you have. But Jesus, that's my fallback. Whatever treasure's in your heart, It's what you've got to let go of. You've got to burn the plows. The original Euler wasn't willing to burn the plows. He wasn't willing to sell all that he had. And I know some people go, well, Jesus can't mean for everybody to sell all that I have. You're right. The issue is the heart. He's going to say to your heart, like, what plows in your life do you need to burn? Go sell all that you have and then come follow me. He couldn't do it. Friends, this is what the cross communicates. So I need you to ask yourself this question, and I, and I want to ask you this question because I care for you and love you as your pastor. And the question is simply this, are you really following Jesus? That doesn't mean perfection. Okay, it doesn't mean perfection. It means you're striving, you're trying to do all that you can to move in the right direction, to keep Jesus in the center, to keep that yes there. Are you really following Jesus or have you turned Jesus into something that helps you achieve your plans? And one of the ways to find out which side of that coin you're on is, have you tried to make deals with God? God, I will follow you when, or I'll follow you if, God, I'm all yours if you would only change this in my life, if you would help me to do with this, if you would fix my marriage, then I'll follow you. God, when I get out of debt, then I'll give. God, if I did it, we just go through all these things, we make all these deals with God. And here's the deal. Like, Jesus encountered three people in Luke chapter 9, all wheeling and dealing. A few came to Jesus and said, I will follow you. Jesus even went to some and invited them to follow him. And there was three interactions specifically where people made deals in the form of excuses. I will follow you, but first let me. I will follow you, but first I will follow you. And Jesus is like, you're not fit. If you put your hands to the plow and you start moving forward and you look back, you're not fit. The only way you're not going to look back is if you don't have a fallback. Burn the plow. Listen, there's only one deal that Jesus will make with you. Only one. Only one. It'll always be this. All of me for all of you. That's the only deal that Jesus is going to make. It's an amazing deal. All of me. You get his joy, his rest, his peace. You get his spirit. 
you get his forgiveness. You get the promise that no matter what happens in your life, he's going to turn it for good. You get the promise that he'll never leave you or forsake you, that nothing could ever separate you by his love. You get to see his faithfulness. You get to see him sacrificing himself for you to give all of him for all of you. So you, he's saying, you get all of this. You get all of my power, all of these things. You just bring me your sin. You bring me your insecurity. We'll make this trade. You give me your brokenness, your confusion, your insecurities, your arrogance. You give me all of that stuff, and I will give you all of me. It's a great deal. You didn't earn it, but that's the only deal he's ever going to make with you. If you want to save your life, you want to find your life, you want to find goodness and greatness and purpose in your life, you got to lay it down, make the trade, pick up his life. This is where the greatness is. Have you made that deal? Have you said yes to Jesus? Some of you probably haven't done that, and you still think that maybe you're good with Jesus, but the reality is he's not the center. You are. And you get frustrated with God because he's not your little vending machine and doing the things that you want him to do for you. And you're kind of like confused and frustrated. You're like, God, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. Where are you? But you're just wheeling and dealing. Make the trade. The beautiful part is, just like we talked about last week, he who began a good work, he will finish it. He will do it. So we are to work it out. Work the plan. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, embracing this mystery that somehow God does it all, but yet we have responsibility to receive and to obey and to move towards because he's the one who's working in you actually to even want it and the ability to do it. Total corny right here. I can't help myself, but this is the way. Some of you got it. And some of you are like, I'm gonna email him. I can't believe he brought in that stuff into church. And some of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about. It's, it's okay. If you make that deal, of laying your life down to receive his life, there is a way of life that follows. And it's showing up, and I wrap it up this way, you burn the plows. You burn the plows. You surrender your plans. You surrender your ambitions. You put your yes on the table. You sacrifice what is needed to be sacrificed to make sure that you can keep giving your yes to Jesus. Elisha, he burned the plows. No retreat, no fallback, no plan B. That's bold faith. And he had to count the cost. I mean, think about that for a moment. There's no way that Elisha didn't count the cost of what he was getting into. In fact, Jesus even warns us and encourages us in Luke 14. Now I'm going to start with verse 27 of Luke 14. He says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then he goes on to like, talk about like, what does it mean to count the cost. He goes, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and wives don't nudge your husband. She's like, see, I told you, this is totally you. You started building something, you ran out of money. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first and sit down and count the cost whether there's enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him. Then he goes on to say, it's like about another man, a king, going to war. If he doesn't count his troops, of course he's going to count his troops because he wants to make sure that he has enough to, to finish the battle. 
And then in verse 33, he says, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Work the plan. When you make that deal, part of working the plan is burning the plows. And so I want to ask you, are you serving two masters? Are you trying to work out your plan and God's plan at the same time? That's going to be frustrating. You can't do it. Is your yes on the table or is it a maybe? Now love, the last thing we see with Elijah. Verse 21. After the communal feast, it says, then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Or a better way of saying, he served him. He served Elijah for 18 years before Elijah passes. He goes from CEO to intern. It's greatness redefined. The invitation to follow Jesus starts with a surrender. And then it moves into a sacrifice. What must I renounce? What must I give up? And then it moves into service. I love what Jesus says in Matthew. If any of you want to be great, it's almost like Jesus is saying, I I put inside of you a desire to be great. I want you to be great. But understand what greatness is. If any of you want to be great, you must become the servant of all. Serve. This is the way. For the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Yeah, friends, the way of Jesus does not reflect the ways of culture. It never will. It wasn't his intention. He doesn't give as the world gives. His ways are way better. His plans are way better. And yes, the way of Jesus might call you to surrender some things that you consider precious and dear and of great value, things that you may have worked so hard for. Yes, the ways of Jesus may be very difficult and uncomfortable, a struggle, And yes, the ways of Jesus may call you to humble yourself so that others can be exalted and lifted up and blessed. 100%. But this is the way. If you want to understand what a good life is, it's saying yes to the invitation. It's burning the plows. Surrender, sacrifice, serving. And next week, we're going to look at Elisha's last moment on earth to help us understand what obedience in the long direction looks like. But here's how I want to end this morning. I know that maybe some of you are at a spot where you're trying to still make deals with God. And I'm reminded of a time when I wasn't fully a believer. And sin was being brought to my attention and I felt like God was calling me to like, you know, follow him. I didn't know all the Christian language at that point. And I remember just saying to him, I was like, God, if I don't have to tell anybody what I've done, and God, if you take away my addictions, and God, like, you know, God, if you do X, Y, and Z, I will follow you wholeheartedly. 
Well, that didn't quite happen the way I was anticipating because God started to pursue me in a very deep and powerful way. And as I was thinking that, like, like I was getting frustrated, God I was like, God, you're not doing it. You're not, ending, you're not upholding your end of the bargain. Like, he got me to a place where he was just like, that's because if I were to do that, you would see me just as a supplement. All of it, Brandon. All of it. And I didn't understand the gospel. I didn't understand all of the benefits. I didn't understand all of the good things that come from believing in Jesus. I didn't understand what forgiveness of sin was. I didn't understand any of that until I made that trade. Until I laid it down. Until I had to face the fact that there were things in my life that I just had to be done with. Like, uh, I'll go here. I'll go here right now. That's totally fine. People ask me why I don't drink. Because I can't handle it. Before I was a Christian, I had a drinking problem. And even first for a few years, when I turned 21 as a Christian, I would dabble with it. And all I kept realizing is like it would just be over my shoulder. I could feel that pull. I could feel that temptation. To a point where there's a time or two where I crossed that line. And it just got to a point, God's like, burn the plow. I had to be done with it. We deal with that with sin. What sins do you entertain? What things do you know that you should not do that you still kind of entertain? But yet you kind of like, you sort of stopped, but not completely stopped. Maybe God has called some of you into a certain life of ministry. Maybe he's called you out of a vocation. Maybe he's putting it on your heart to end a certain relationship. I don't know what it is. But you got to know that laying down your life for his, laying down your plans for his, is the best thing you could ever do. So as we conclude this morning, we're going to do something that's unusual and not typical for us as a church. But as we were worshiping, it was just pressed on my spirit and I want to do it. If there's people in this room who need to make that deal of saying yes to Jesus and no to your life, to say yes for the first time, to receive the gift of salvation, I want you to come forward and we're going to pray for you. And I want to encourage you to do it in boldness. I know, like, oh, I don't want people to see me and you know, all that kind of stuff. No, no one's seeing you, okay? God's seeing you. I want to encourage you to do that. But secondly, also, I know there's some of you in this room that chased the fallback plan. There's some of you in this room that have yet to burn the plows. I want you to come forward as well. I want to pray for you. And even if we can't get to you, just use this time as like, like you saying yes to the Spirit's work inside of you, going, I'm presenting myself here, God, as a sacrifice. I'm just like, this is, it's a step of faith. It's a step of obedience. I want to encourage you to do that. And I asked Seth if he could like just lead us in this song. It's one of my favorites. It's an oldie but goodie with a twist. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. And even if you're just at a spot where you're like, 
I need to make that declaration again. No turning back. Come on up. Let's pray for you. Let's not waste this moment or this opportunity to allow God to do stuff in our hearts. So saying that, we're not prepared. I don't have people set up in the queue to come up and pray. So if there's any of you who feel like you could come up and pray, staff, elders, other lay leaders, we have small group leaders, that would be amazing. Come on up. Because we want to pray for you. Lord, I ask that um, in this moment that you would just speak to our hearts. Lord, we can't manufacture conviction. We can't manufacture your spirit moving in our hearts, Lord. So we just ask that your spirit would do that. And Lord, I pray that we as a church, we wouldn't hear this and walk away with this guilt and shame burden on us, but we would understand that it's a father speaking to his children out of concern and love of discipline and wanting the best and the good for us. But it's not just for that, because we also understand that when we move this way, other people are blessed. And that's where, like, so much joy and fulfillment comes in sharing in your work. Lord, I want to pray for anybody in this room who may not have ever said yes to you. Maybe they were religious and they thought that it was about what they would do, X, Y, and Z, and then we're good. Or maybe they just try to use you as some form of supplement in their own life. Lord, I pray that they would say yes to you, that you would stir them up. They would say yes to you and receive this gift of faith, this grace, this salvation. And Lord, I also want to pray for my brothers and sisters in this room. Because if we were honest, our, all of our hearts are prone to wander. All of our hearts struggle with letting go things that we hold dear things that we're convinced that we need to have to satisfy. Lord, I know that there's some of us in this room that are half-heartedly following you. And I know that their hearts and their spirits aren't okay with it. And so their flesh and their spirit right now is wrestling. So Lord, I pray that your spirit would overcome them. So Lord, may we be a church that constantly says, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back the world behind me. So I want to encourage you at this time, if you feel prompted, stirred, or just along, I want to encourage you, just come on up. Come up to the front and we'll pray. We'll turn the lights down so nobody sees you but just use it as a, as a declaration of faith.